Welcome to the Hardwood Hustle, powered by PGC Basketball. We believe in the value of a coach. We're here to educate, empower, and encourage you to lead like never before. This week, Keisha Brown joins the Hardwood Hustle to share how she's transitioned after playing 10 years of professional basketball overseas and in the WNBA to building a successful high school program. She was a standout for Georgia women's basketball competing in a Final Four, and after her playing career, she's now a head high school coach, athletic director, and also refs at the Division I level. In this episode, we cover a variety of topics with Keisha, and you won't want to miss how she builds her players' basketball IQ and develops and teaches her offense and defensive systems and strategies. Before we start, a quick word from PGC Basketball. If you want to have the smartest players on the court next season, there's no other place for them to be this summer than PGC Camp. Don't settle for bad decision-making, unnecessary turnovers, and lack of leadership any longer. A week at a point guard college, scoring college, or playmaker college camp for two to three of your players may be the difference between a mediocre season and a winning the championship. And if you want to take your own basketball IQ and coaching to a whole new level, join over 8,000 coaches who have attended a week at PGC. Youth coaches to professional coaches have called a week at PGC the best coaching clinic they've ever attended. So go to pgcbasketball.com to find a camp today. All right, welcome back to the Hardwood Hustle. And we've got a special guest today, Keisha Brown. And Keisha, uh, we're really excited to have her on. She's she's a very well-accomplished player, All-American in high school, went on playing the SEC, played in the WNBA, and, and now is a head high school coach and athletic director. She also refs, so she touches many points and pieces of the game of basketball. So we're excited to learn from her. You know, Keisha, to start us off, I thought we'd start here, which is, when you are a great player like you were and you transition into coaching, that can be a real challenge for a lot of high-level players for a couple of reasons. One, they're just really good because they were talented, maybe bigger, faster, stronger, so they can't relate to the, that player that's not that. Or they were so driven and dedicated when you start coaching a high school kid who doesn't have that same ambition, that's a frustrating thing as well. So maybe just talk to us when you first started coaching, what were some of those early struggles for you as a coach? Man. So I can probably recall um, just some of my earlier thought processes as a coach. What is the easiest system to run that um, taking a group of girls that don't, that they play basketball to get through to soccer um, what can I do to have them be highly functional as basketball players for three months? And so that was that was the first challenge that I wanted to be able to to cover for us to be able to functionally play um, basketball. So, you know, it's one of those things where you look at tape from what the team did prior to, to my arrival and um, there was a struggle to score. And it wasn't that the effort was lacking. It was just the ability to know how to score. And so, um, you know, I was always taught from Coach Landers at Georgia, um, effort is all defense. And so applying that defensive principle and, and giving them something that I could use to their quickness of being on a soccer field or being a cross-country runner, the endurance of it, turning that into a defensive stance and, and being uh, in position to get steals, deflections, or just completely denial and working on a lot, a lot of fundamental layups. <laughs> That's it. That's a good place to start. Yeah. Making layups. Yeah. You got to make layups. Oh, yeah. So it sounds like finding, identifying a system, getting them to play hard. And, that, you know, as a young coach, you draw back a lot on your playing experiences. And you, you also don't realize, I remember when I transitioned from playing in college to coaching, I didn't realize everything that went into it. 
as a coach, you think you just show up with a whistle on and you, you coach for a couple hours, you know, so what did you draw back from in your early days or who did you draw from? You mentioned coach Landers. Is that where you sourced a lot of your early days of coaching from? Um, well, actually, no, <laughs> it, it came from, um, you know, in high school, I went to Woodward Academy and we were 62 and 0 in my two years there. And so I literally had to go back to what practice looked like in high school, because if I could mirror that, then that kept us at a fundamental level of everybody's ability. Right. Because fundamentals are equal across the board when you when you deal with it from the one on one perspective. And so that's what I went back. I went back and, and tried to gather everything in my memory bank from what we did in high school um, in terms of our practice schedule. So I developed a first block. And for us. A first block um, is 15 minutes. It is the same thing every day. And it's full court layups, you know, give and go passes, um, just a lot of transitional layups so they could focus on the repetition of, of seeing the ball going a hole, of, of layups being made. But it also gave me and my staff the opportunity to kind of check the mood of what our team was looking like. You know, if you saw a lot of missed layups, that means it, there was no focus there. And so it just gave me the opportunity to see where, you know, if I needed to shift in more of a stern way or I need to shift in more of a, you know, it's exam week. We probably need to let let loose a little bit. So that was a really good period. And it gave them something that they could they could be self-starters with. And then from there, we took on, um, you know, we went from that mode. And so then it actually came to my professional years um, because, you know, when you're professional, you run a lot of high frequency short sets. And it's not a lot of um, continuity outside of zone zone offenses. And um, so we ran, you know, just trying to run the zone offense and turn it into a man offense when we needed to. But just learning those zone offenses and those quick hitters professionally in the zone hitter, I'll say in the zone repetition from uh, my days at Georgia. So that's really kind of how I started my pattern at coaching. I needed to coach what I knew. <laughs> and then everything else I would just I gather and learn along the way. So we've. We've come leaps and bounds since uh, my first year here at Galloway. Keisha, I really like the approach. You know, the first thing you did is watch film and what they could and couldn't do and how could I make them successful, which, you know, I think a lot of coaches go with the approach opposite of that. Here's what I know. So we're going to do this, even though it doesn't match the players. And so interested to know how did that, how has that evolved for you over time? You know, when you looked at it and said, hey, we need two things. We need to be able to generate shots and we need to be able to generate shots they can make. And it looked like, you know, the first thing you said is, well, we can help them to be able to make layups and we could possibly generate shots from our defense. Now, over time, have you seen your players develop into better players since you've had them? And how has that changed how you've tried to generate shots within your team or has it changed? So I've never told my players they couldn't shoot because we all have to be a threat on the court, right? That's that's what makes a team a team. Um, even if they throw jump defense, boxing one, triangle two, however they want to throw a jump defense. I've even had uh, two in a zone and three in a man-to-man this year. And so what happens is you have to have all five of those girls be ready and available to shoot. So, you know, even a lot of what I've learned from you guys is your go shot. And so learning your go shot, I had, you know, over time, my kids have progressed and they've gone through the feeder system here they start to understand what their go shot is. And for shooters, for us, you get to the corners and you just try to knock down as many shots as you can at, at every depth in the corner. And they know for certain that if, if I'm going to get a shot, I'm probably going to get in the corner. Uh, we run a lot of elbow stuff. So corns, high four sets, 
Um, so we have a lot of spaces and spots to where my kids know that, all right, if I'm in this space, this is my space. I'm comfortable with that. So having to evolve from horns, set that elbow action to, you know, curls, flares, pinches, having to just broaden that whole horns family out has really helped us to be able to develop offensively what we want to do, even though we're generating a lot of what we do from a defensive standpoint. So now the girls know, you know, if we're going to work, let's work on our go shot. So by the time I'm looking at you in the game, okay, I know that you've, you've done this. You know, I've watched some of my kids that, again, are high soccer players. You, you, wouldn't, you, you wouldn't think you would get a lot out of them, but six to eight points a game for a quote-unquote non-basketball player, it's a big stretch because those six to eight points are dump downs from, you know, our D1 point guard or their short kickouts or short corners that people are leaving, you know, this certain player open. So that's what get them comfortable. And our higher level athletes, they get comfortable making those passes because they know that those players are going to knock down those shots. So we've evolutionized the way that, you know, we would just, we still continue to work on our transition layup. We still have our first block. Um, we've tuned it up a little bit and added a lot more ball handling to it because at some point everybody's going to get the ball off the rim and everybody's going to go. So we've, we've, we've maximized what our first block is doing within that 15 minutes to be able to support um, all the cuts and all the sets that we run in the game. And you're talking about your youth feeder program. Can you expand on that a little bit? Like, is they're feeding up? Yeah. So with our school and, and a lot of times for independent school systems, um, you get to use your eighth graders and put them on a JV level. They're able to go up one level um, if, if it's possible. So a lot of our eighth graders, I invite them in over the summertime so we can get the intimidation factor over with. And this is a chance where we really get a chance to just walk the court. And it could be two hours of just walking the court and let's go in over sets. And this is where you're supposed to get things wrong. This is where you're supposed to ask questions. Why could we have the time? So when we get into October, those same rising eighth graders or even rising ninth graders, they've had that camaraderie with the team. They've had kind of a splash into um, their program that we're running. And all it is is some recall. So you have recall on the on the the uh, high frequency stuff that we do. And then it's just about, you know, fine tuning and adding some of the cuts that we do um, in our family, in our system. So the feeder program, I'll say it's, it's important because, one, it just gets that it takes away that intimidation factor. It gets the kids going. It gets the camaraderie going, you know, and they're able to see that it was like, hey, this is not so bad after all. This is something that I want to be a part of. And it's more or less the culture than it is the game of basketball. That's really good. I feel like here just in Georgia where you're coaching and, and probably across the country, really good girls programs, they start young. And so by the time you coach that girl in ninth grade, you have a four, sometimes five year relationship with them. So they know your style. They know the expectations, the culture, like you said. You know, one thing I want to go back to, you said, Keisha, you know, you and I have had some, you know, off the show conversation, too, is like, you run, you do run a lot of sets and I think girls thrive in some structure, but how do you balance like a lot of sets structure versus more of a free flowing play where they, they can learn through some chaos and mistakes? How, how do you view that? So I'm a very defensive minded person. 
And so I want our chaos to be on defense. So if our chaos is on defense and we're in spaces where we need to be, um, kudos to you guys for lock left defense that we've totally uh, magnified in every sense of the way. So if we can create that kind of chaos on defense, there's your free flow. So if we can get the ball, then we can get to our spots and we can we can run and I don't have to call anything because now we're just playing basketball. And that's unscoutable. That's that's when you've got to start scouting player tendencies, this, that, and the third. You know, when we go to our sets, that's like, okay, now we have to be very observant and very structured and very disciplined. I'd rather say disciplined than structured. Very disciplined and patient in, in what we do on offense. So our screens have to be stronger. Our cuts have to be harder. We've, we've got to go to receive the ball. We've got to be able to make sure that the pass from the passer is getting where it needs to be in that spot to even start the offense to create that first pass. And so that's where the structure comes in. And so a lot of times my kids have problems because if we do a one four set, which is, you know, high wings and, and, and um, two players on the elbow, and then you get to a horn set, which puts those same two people on the elbow and two people on the baseline, well, we could have four or five sets out of each family. And so it's getting them to understand the family. And then we move from there. So when we learn, you know, and, and teaching them about the family of plays, um, you know, we teach them like, okay, we got horns. We, we've got five movements out of horns. And a lot of times I just number them. So if it's horns two, we know that's going to be for a shooting guard. <laughs> you know, we try to keep it very simple, very basic, but also distinctive to where they know who they're playing for. And then we counter, we can counter from there. But I think the biggest thing is the discipline on offense and the chaos on defense. Hey, excited to deflect this question to you as I get this question so often. And you addressed it earlier, talking about how many different types of defenses you see, like junk defense. And so when you face junk defense, um, whatever kind it is, do you have a general philosophy or is it a game to game philosophy where you say, Hey, we're going to run our man stuff, or we're going to run our zone stuff, or how do you make the decision on how you're going to attack some junk defense? Um, okay. So this is where the player in me comes out a little bit. So when I get a junk defense, a lot of times it's on my point guards that I've got a couple of very, very good versatile point guards. I make the person who is being face guarded, the screener. Why? Because their job is to stay on the person that they're supposed to be guarding. So when that screen happens, no one is helping. So that's a lot of times, like if I see that happening and all of a sudden, okay, now my point guard, you're to become a stretch four and I'm going to let my stretch four now become the point guard. And we're just going to run her off of screens because they're not supposed to be applying help. Um, so a lot of that, it's just become simple pick and roll. Now, what we saw this year, which, which was a new challenge for me, we saw a three and man and a two just kind of an eye formation um, at the free throw line. And so it was getting my other two girls to be able to stretch out and almost create a two man game on one side. It doesn't matter screen or no screen, but be attacking the basket because normally the defense was putting their best three defenders on my best three kids. So the other two that were in eye formation, they, they weren't as mobile. They weren't as tall. And so I was able to, to put, you know, some, some of my quicker kids and we, we go around and we have, we have some cuts and some movements on a two-man game that we were able to draw from. I didn't necessarily want to put in a zone because that would, uh, that, that would win, you know, and then you didn't want to screen too much with the girls that were being heavily guarded 
So again, that key was that you got to play even harder on defense because if, if, you know, those girls, three in particular, if they wanted to be able to get the ball and run with it and have it, we had to have an opportunity to be able to lock down on defense, rebound, and then start our break. So a lot of it was just making sure that I kept the confidence in those two other girls on the floor so they can penetrate gaps and, you know, set screen as they needed to. They had to learn how to play, you know, with and for themselves. That's really good. You know, Keisha, you just finished your eighth year at Galloway. What would you tell the younger Keisha in your first year of coaching that you know now, you wish you had known then, and then ultimately that whatever you're going to say, this is going to a lot of these younger coaches that are listening. So what advice would you give yourself? Man, you know, I think the biggest thing is take the challenge. You hear it a lot. It's, it's uh, you know, sometimes players don't make good coaches. And, you know, I consider myself a, a true player coach. I can, I can read, you know, bodies when people are tired. Um, you know, I can pick apart defenses pretty good from the sideline and be able to talk to, talk to my kids, um, you know, on the court. But I think the biggest growth that I made this year was the ability to sit down and actually learn the fundamental coaching uh, tactics. You know, it's, it's more psychological. It's, um, it's being in tune with, with really what's going on and the intangibles of how you teach certain things. And, and you know, my team, they, they trigger me a lot because it's about counters. A lot of times basketball becomes about counters once your first read is gone. Well, my kids are already in read two and three, and we haven't even done read one. So now it's about, okay, how do we actually get to read one to, to understand why we have to deflect to read two and read three? So those details that are within, you know, read one and two and read two and three, that's what I had to learn. So that was my challenge. It was not giving up on plays. It was not giving up on certain players within plays. It's giving them the details that they needed to be able to get from this is a play to this is a counter to this is counter B. And I think that was the biggest thing. So, you know, a lot of times I didn't accept the challenge of actually being a coach. And then once I accepted the challenge of actually being a coach, then I was able to seek and find the things that I needed to get the answers that I probably wasn't looking for, but needed. Yeah, that's really good. The um, It's really thought provoking as well. And I think coaches that are making the transition from, you know, a younger coach into maturing into the coach that you want to be. I, I like the phrasing of just accepting the challenge. You know, I think a lot of times we deflect that because we, we might see a weakness or something that we're not doing well, but accepting that challenge is going to make you a lot better. A little bit uh, nervous to ask this next question is I might feel a little convicted maybe with your answer, but you officiated a really high level as well. So talk to me about coaching and officiating like how has it changed your approach or has it changed your approach you know going from one night coaching to another night officiating it's made it better so you know i, I officiate at a, a high mid-major d1 level uh on the women's basketball side and as a referee you want to get calls right and you want to be able to adjudicate those call, those calls with efficiency within your group and you also need to game manage. So, you know, this is the, the the one time that coaches can't step on the floor. They can't control anything that's going on on the floor. And so you already know that they're packing in that frustration on the sidelines immediately because they can't go out there and stop plays. And so being able to game manage coaches on both sides, being very fair for both sides, 
it's important. And, and obviously when you flip that being a coach, you want to be heard. You want to be heard if your team, um, you know, if you don't think your team is getting a fair shake or there was a missed call, either good or bad, um, you want to make sure that you're being heard because you're not being heard as a coach. That's very frustrating. Now, it can either take you to a higher level or it can shut you down because you feel like you're just not going to get what you feel like you deserve as a coach. And so when I coach a game on a Tuesday night in, in high school, I'm very particular about how I talk to certain officials. One, because just as, as human, we don't know what happened six hours prior to. We all met together on the court. And so there has to be some kind of empathy, sympathy towards that. So I'm very particular about when I do <laughs> when I do talk to officials on the court. And I also learned standing from the high school level, it is a learning curve for all of us. It is a learning curve. Um, and then on the other side, when I am an official at the college level, this is how college coaches feed their families. And so it, it may not be, you know, it is as important as high school, but it's even more important for college coaches because this is what you thrive on. This is how, you know, you feed your family and this is exactly the passion that is your purpose and it's what you love. And we understand that and we adhere to that. For some officials, it's our advocation. For, you know, for other officials, it's it's 100% of what they do as well. So, you know, we have to make sure that that blend is a very good blend for those two hours that we're together. We've all got to be best friends. And so it's just making sure that we say the right things and that we do the right things to make the game fair. Hey, guys, let's take a quick halftime break. Leadership and frustration. If you've been leading, there might be times that you've been frustrated. They can go hand in hand. And leadership is so rewarding, yet it can be challenging at times because we're leading others and others are humans and humans are flawed people. So how do we develop our leadership? How do we develop leadership within our players? Well, one way we can do it is by actually teaching it to a few and, and less is more often. And so in practices, oftentimes I'll pull aside a couple players and I'll really challenge them or encourage them on what we're about to do. And I'll only tell them the next drill or concept that we're working on to test them on how they communicate to the, to their teammates. And then how do we go out and execute? I tell them the two or three things that we're looking for, the attention to detail that we want. And then I only coach those two or three players. Maybe it's even one player. One, one mistake that's made by coaches is we try to coach every player on leadership all throughout practice. And that can be effective and that might work for you. But another strategy is investing in and depositing in to just one or two players in different segments of practice and really coach them up on how they're leading players. And that'll help build a stronger team. It'll build stronger leaders in your program. And the less or the more you become less important, that's a good thing. And you're on your way to becoming a player-led team and a player-led program when a coach becomes less important over time. This is brought to you by our good friends at shootaway.com, makers of the gum gun. Be sure to go support them. Go check them out at shootaway.com and you can learn how they've helped thousands of players all across the world become better players and better shooters. Now, back to the show. Yeah, you know, and the interesting thing about that is I, I've never found a good way to explain this to people. 
you know, being a college coach and, you know, obviously an official at the college level is getting paid much better than an official at the high school level. Right. And the expectation is that they be better, you know, because they've worked their way up to that level. And, you know, you see college coaches a lot of times appropriately and inappropriately getting onto officials. And that tends to just trickle down to, you know, another level. And I, I've, I've always had a lot of sympathy for, for officials at the high school level because, you know, they have less training. They have less experience a lot of times in that they're getting paid much less to do this job. And sometimes they're taking way more crap than you can even see sometimes at the college level. But I think it does. I mean, like trickle down from you look at an NBA player, you know, if they act one way on the court, then you're going to see college players act that way and college players act that way. And, you know, high school players are going to act that way. And you even see it in youth. And so it can be a dangerous and slippery slope to model like what's going on above, but there is a lot at stake for a college coach. And I, you know, I love the way that you articulated that is the, what everybody, what every person has a different dog in the fight in that particular night in that particular arena, but going back to just remembering that they are people. Follow-up question is this, is what do you think the best way for a coach to um, deal with an official to, to make sure they're having good communication with official is? Well, I think, first of all, if there is something like to ask the question, like I think you'll get by a lot more with, with asking the question, but there's a certain range of questions that you're able to have. And I mean, numerically, if you're asking a question every time we're going down the court, then, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like sometimes a boy who cried wolf, right? And that we've always we're getting something in our ear all the time and we're listening and we're hearing, but we're also working to to, you know, make the game fair for these kids to be able to play. Um, and then you have, you know, certain coaches that don't say a thing. And for a lot of people like, oh, man, they're a joy to work for because they don't say a thing. Well, is it because they feel like there is no dog in a fight, that they're not going to win even if they do say something, or is it just their persona on the basketball court? So you have to you have to kind of remedy those, um, the different concept of how coaches coach. I know, you know, you always get instances where you'll get games where you have a coach that's spitfire, that they're going to talk every single time down the, coach, uh, down the court, and then you're going to have the coach on the other end that doesn't say a word, but you – you're always concerned and we want to make sure that if you're always responding to the spitfire, that you got to be even more observant of the one that doesn't say a word because the moment that that coach doesn't, that says something, then antennas go way up, you know? So you have to make sure that that visually what the arena is seeing is what they're seeing. And so a lot of times it, it gets tricky because I don't want to smile on one end and not smile on the other, but I don't want to smile on this end and not smile on the other. So um, it gets tricky, but I think that comes with, you know, coach, you see, you see referees, they occur in your gym in and out and you start to form that relationship. You start to form that trust with how they call the game. Um, and it's always great. I think it's always great, especially before media timeouts run the college realm. Um, if a coach has something um, that they say it because it gives us as officials the opportunity to go and and repeat what's going on and what you may see and what we may need to look out for. Cause I mean, honestly, there are things that we don't see because we have certain areas of coverage. It's such an important conversation is the, the ref uh, role in the game of basketball. And I see it being in the club circuit, the travel ball, the youth, 
Like we've just got to do a better job as, as guardians of the game, whatever you want to call it. We need to help, you know, make that relationship between fans and refs and coaches and refs better. But to shift gears for a second, um, Keisha, when a young lady gets done playing for you in four years, she, she played for you for four years, when she walks out the door, takes off that jersey for the last time, whether she's going to go in and play Division One basketball or won't play basketball competitively the rest of her life, what do you have wanted for her to learn and walk out that door having learned from you? Well, before the learn part, I think the biggest thing is I want them to come back. Because I think it says a lot when you have players that, that leave a program. And even for me, when I left Georgia and I started to really watch other college programs, the biggest thing is when, you know, you pan across and your team is in a final four and you see all these former players come back because that means they believe in you. They believe in the system. They believe in the culture and you, you've got forever support. So I think the biggest thing is the opportunity for these girls to make it a priority at some point in time when they take off a Galloway jersey for them to come back because it, it just says a lot. Um, but I think the biggest thing that I want, and particularly my young ladies, is to understand that you can be a young lady. It, it's hard because they choose to, you know, they choose to play basketball. And basketball is a contact sport. It's not rough, but it is a contact sport. And a lot of times it can be miscued as, you know, rough and tough. You have to look a certain way, dress a certain way, be a certain way. And then on the other side, you have certain girls that, Overexemplify what it is to be a woman and be athletic. You can do both. You know, there's no way, there's no direction of how you should look in order to be uh, a female athlete. And so the biggest thing I want them to be able to understand is that you are a female athlete. You are a woman first. And then you are an athlete. That accentuates who you are. And to be able to love who you are inside and out and understand who you are and to keep the confidence, not let anybody else. Take the confidence because you giving somebody else your energy is your confidence. Keep your confidence because there are going to be times where there's going to be enough haters out there doing their job where you're going to need that confidence to keep you built up. So, you know, being a, a, a female athlete, I think, is the biggest thing. And understanding who they are as young women growing in this world is probably the biggest takeaway. Basketball is a ticket. It's always been a ticket. And then once that all athletes, male and female, they learn that that basketball is their ticket, it will love you back. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my dad used to always say, be good to the game and the game will be good to you and, and yes. approach it that way. Uh, so I love the way you articulated that. Staying on that topic, you've had the opportunity to have many basketball experiences, probably much more than the average person, you know, it, not even the average person, the elite person, because you've done it at so many different levels and officiating so many different aspects of the game. Looking back on everything as a player, as a coach, what are some things that you would on both ends of it say, these are some of the best lessons I've learned. You don't have to use any names, but what these are some of the best lessons I've learned and here's some things that I've seen that I just completely want to stay away from that, you know, should have never happened that maybe was, you know, detrimental to your career or, or something like that. So both the positive and the negatives. So the coaches listening are thinking, you know, these are the things that stuck with Keisha. And these are the things that I don't want the traps I don't want to fall into. All right. I'll give you my thorn first. We, we call it roses and thorns here. I'll give you my thorn first. From a professional standpoint, all money isn't good money. That is the number one thing that, 
I played professional basketball for 10 years, uh, both in the WNBA and overseas and over seven, eight different countries. And I can tell you both from a WNBA city team to a European team, um, I ran for the money and it ended up not being good money because I was miserable. So all money isn't good money. You, you've got to research and you've got to see what's behind, you know, that green, which is what we all habitually chase at times. But you really got to see what is it worth to you? Is it worth your health? Is it worth your emotional being? Is it worth really not seeing your family? Is it worth you being isolated? Like, what is it really worth to you to make that dollar? So my thorn to that is all money isn't good money. Some of my best lessons, I'll say, came from overseas, just being able to adjust, being able to be to become a natural problem solver. And that goes along with, you know, you being in a, a Turkish culture, you don't speak Turkish and still having to live and survive and thrive and enjoy the experience. So just having to adjust, you know, not worrying about if someone is saying something about you, again, being comfortable in your own skin, because it doesn't matter what whomever is saying about you in another language, in English, it doesn't matter, but just being comfortable in your own skin to be able to adjust to whatever that, you know, you need to have. As individuals, we all have objectives. We all have priorities and things that we want to be able to accomplish every day, every week, every month, every year. And then when we set out to accomplish those tasks, then it doesn't matter who is not helping us. What matters is who is helping us get through those changes. So those adjustments, being able to just being able to be problem solvers and just not dwell on things that, you know, we just can't control. Like I know being on the court as a point guard for most of my life, I was in charge of handling the ball, controlling the offense and being pesky on defense. And over time, I got turned into a two guard. Well, it was because I would rather get to the hole and make decisions from there than run an offense and then sit in the corner. So over time, I became a two guard. Well, what did that mean for me that I could inflict on myself? That means I need to probably be in the gym a little bit more because I need to shoot more for higher accuracy, not for higher volume of shots, but for higher accuracy. Those are the things that I could control. So by time that I got back from a six years, I mean, excuse me, a six, seven month contract period overseas. And I came back to the WNBA for four months. I was a better shooter. And that's what turned me into that combo guard. And I ended up guarding the Tamika Ketchens of the world, the Diana Taurasi's, the big guards, you know, and I'm five, five, 10, 154 soaking wet work boots on. <laughs> These girls are 160, 175 full muscle. But it was it was the work ethic that I was able to put in that I could control to make myself a better player for the following year. And, and that was one of some of the best lessons that I could take from the game of basketball. And that's what I try to instill. And, in, you know, the girls and guys that I see every time, you know, again, one of the famous quotes from Coach Landers, if you're in the gym, might as well sweat. So, you know, that term is. If you're going to be in there, you're going to get some shots up. Well, let's just get some shots up. Let's just not, you know, take a two ball and see if we can score two baskets at the same time with two basketballs. Like, it's not realistic. It's not going to happen in the game. So let's do the things that are going to make us better 
and let's get something out of it. And it doesn't have to be an hour. If you work hard for 30 minutes and you get everything done in 30 minutes, then you're good. You know, I tell some of my girls, shoot until you're tired, not fatigued. Because when you're fatigued, that's that's when your muscle memory turns bad. But if you're shooting till you're tired, that's fourth quarter tired. Then we can we can push through that. When you're fatigued, then your muscle memory goes out of the door. So just little things like that. But I think the adjusting uh, was the biggest lesson for me. Um, that's my roles. And all money is in good money. That's that's my thorn. All money isn't good money. It, it's so that's a, that's a good quote because I think, you know, sometimes you, you could be really happy. I'm just going to make up a number, making 50, 60,000. And then somebody, you could go make 80, 90, but you give up a lot of family or a lot of, you give up something else. But sometimes, sometimes you got to go through it. You chase something you think you're chasing, you end up on the wrong mountain and you realize I climbed up the wrong mountain when I should have been on this other one. So great, great lesson, Keisha. Before we wrap up, where can listeners, you know, follow you? Are you active, you know, whether social media or whatever you want to give out and how they could contact you or reach out to you? All right. So I am on social media, probably not as glorious as you guys are, but uh, I still try to do my part. But on Twitter and Instagram, it's at KB Faith, F-A-I-T-H, four, at KB Faith, four. So four is as much as my jersey number as four is the foundational block. You need four pieces to create your foundation in everything that you do. That's awesome. Well, Keisha, thanks for uh, your time and you're just uh, amazing. Pat, your amazing passion for the game, you know, exudes and how you talk and how you show up and you're given in every area as a player, coach, ref. And so we appreciate you jumping on the Harwood Hustle. Uh, so thank you. That's TJ and I'm Sam and this is the Harwood Hustle. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Harwood Hustle, where we believe in the value of a coach. If you enjoyed today's episode and our discussion on topics such as player development, systems, and strategies with a sprinkle of leadership and culture, then you'll also enjoy our PGC coaching clinics. Every clinic features 22 topics covering all aspects of the game, and we have six locations to choose from, including Phoenix, Louisville, Atlanta, Dallas, Salt Lake City, and Chicago. Go to pgccoaching.com to find out more. That's pgccoaching.com. We hope you can join us. From the Harwood Hustle team, thanks again for listening. We're committed to bringing you quality content and appreciate everyone sharing our episodes on social media and helping to grow our coaching community. We can't wait to be with you again next week.